0: I encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to 2 Peter chapter 1. The message this morning is all about God's Word. And uh, we're jumping back into a series that Pastor Brian started not long ago called "A Be Transformed and Learning to Think Biblically. And our objective over this summer is to uh, focus in on some different topics And to begin to think biblically about them. And there's so much that the world, so much influence that the world has over us, and sometimes it's hard to identify where we've actually subtly, maybe not so subtly, been influenced to think about things in a worldly way, and we need our minds and our hearts recalibrated by the Word of God. We need the Word of God to be the thing that helps us determine how to think. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 makes that explicitly clear that we are not to be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and that renewal happens by the word of God. Now, we're gonna be talking about a number of topics over the summer but I really felt compelled flowing out of our series that we've just finished to uh, find kind of some grounding in learning to think biblically about the Bible. If we're gonna be going to the Bible as our source for information on all these different topics, it's helpful maybe for us to get regrounded on what we actually believe about the Bible. Why is the Bible the source that we can turn to for these answers? And um, I'll just kind of let you in on a little bit of a a secret. I I intended this to be one message, and it's actually going to now be two as of yesterday. So uh, (laughs) there's just so much that can be said about the Word of God. And I, I find that every time I start studying the Word of God, uh, what the Word of God says about the Word of God, my heart is just so overwhelmed, it is so full, and, and I just, I, I believe that in one sense that's because my heart is so endeared to the Word of God. I'm so thankful, I hope you are this morning, I'm so thankful for the Word of God. And uh, we've, we've talked a lot over the past few weeks about how God has revealed Himself to us, You know, we've talked about um, general revelation, that God has revealed himself to us through the world around us. There's that internal knowledge of God, but one of the things I said we would come back to, and that's what we're doing here today, is that God has not just left this general knowledge about himself, because listen, the the reality is we can only know of God through general revelation. We cannot deeply and intimately know God personally and relationally without what theologians call special revelation. And that is that God would speak to us about Himself, that He would tell us who He is and how we can know Him. And so I want to take the next two weeks to address this topic. How do we think biblically about the Bible? And I want to deal with two points this week to help us think biblically about the Bible and two points next week. The first point I want to deal with this week is this. The Bible is totally trustworthy. The Bible is totally trustworthy. And I'm going to anchor this point in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, and we're going to look at it in just a moment, but let me set the stage for this as you're turning there or as you're already there in your Bible. The Bible is God's Word. Kind of redundant to say it like this, but let me just, let me just do this for the sake of, I think, reminding us, God's Word is God's Word, right? It is the very word of God, and we need to begin right here. The Christian church has always claimed that this book that we hold in our hands right here, that is on our laps right now, is not some ordinary book. Amen? This is not some man-made invention. This book is not like any other book on the face of the earth. Christians have always claimed that this book is the very word of God. This is by far, by the way, the most significant claim about the Bible— that it actually finds its source not in man, but in God Himself. The term for this, theologically, is inspiration, that the Bible is inspired by God. There are two passages of scripture that speak to this, that teach us that the Bible is inspired. It is literally produced by God. And by inspired, we don't mean that it is poetically inspired. As, As a poet might say that he was inspired to write a poem last night, that's not what we mean. That poet means that he was moved with an emotional creativity and energy that resulted in his poetic efforts, but Paul, the apostle, when he talks about what it means for the Bible to be inspired, means something entirely different. When Peter references this concept of inspiration, he means something entirely different. He means that it is literally breathed out by the mouth of God. In fact... Let me just remind you of a verse that we're going to come back to next week. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it today. I'm just going to reference it because it's one of the most foundational for this topic. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, it's on the screen behind me, all scripture is breathed out. You can fast forward, flick to the next screen. Wait, sorry. Halfway down there, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that term, breathed out by God, is an incredibly rich term. It means that God literally breathed it into existence, He is the source. Paul communicates the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, again on the screen behind me, verses 12 and 13. Listen to how he says it here. He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual Again, just keep in mind, Paul is talking about an inspiration here that is is unlike that that poet who was inspired. He is talking about an inspiration that, that reveals its source to be found in God himself. Paul means that his very words were governed by the Spirit of God. And God aims to communicate to us through words. That's the way God has always designed his communication, words that will accomplish his purpose. And so the second passage, the main passage I want to focus in is 2 Peter chapter 1, specifically verses 19 through 21. But let's back up a little bit and let's read to get the context. Back up to verse 16 with me. And I I love the context of this verse. See, Peter is declaring, Peter is writing this, the Apostle Peter, he's declaring to have been an eyewitness to some amazing events, the transfiguration. Remember that when Jesus brought Peter, James, and John up to the mountain of transfiguration and right there before Peter's very eyes, the flesh of Jesus Christ was unzipped, so to speak, and he saw the glorious divinity of Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus as God in the most powerful, potent way as he stood on the mountain of transfiguration, And it was so revolutionary, he didn't want to leave, right? He wanted to build a tent for Jesus and for Moses and Elijah, and he wanted to stay there. He didn't want Jesus to leave. It was such a powerful experience that he had. And he's trying to tell the the people reading his letter, look, you can believe me. You You should see what I saw. You should have heard what I heard. And he's convincing them that it was real. This Jesus Christ is absolutely real. His death, his burial, his resurrection, it was real. His exaltation, it was real. I saw it. I was there. But I love this. Rather than say, just believe my experience, Peter is saying there's something that you can trust more than my experience. And listen to what he says in verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. That's what was being said about the gospel, that the resurrection of Jesus was just some myth. It wasn't based in any kind of fact or reality. He says, we didn't follow any cleverly devised myths when we, were, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father in the voice of was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. Do you see what he's saying? And we, listen to this, and we have something more sure. You might want to circle those two words. He says, you see, we have something far more sure, something far more stable, something far more trustworthy than my own experience. We have the prophetic word of God. We have the holy scriptures. And in these verses, Peter wants to make three things clear that I think will help us anchor ourselves in this concept that the word of God is totally trustworthy. First, God spoke. Second, man wrote. And the whole thing is without error. So let's kind of break those apart quickly from these verses, God spoke. You can call this divine causality. The prophets were men whose messages did not originate with their own impulse, but they were spirit-moved. Did you see, hear how he phrases that there? No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. By revelation, God spoke to the prophets in many ways. Hebrews 1, verse 1 tells us that long ago, uh, God spoke in many ways, uh, many times to the prophets. He used angels and visions and dreams and voices and miracles and burning bushes and donkeys. Inspiration is the way God spoke to the prophets to others. God is the prime mover in the inspiration of the Bible. It is His book. He is its author in the, the the greatest sense of that word that God is the ultimate source and original cause of biblical truth is the first and most fundamental factor in the doctrine of inspiration I think it's important to to have our our minds anchored in this reality because the authorship of the Bible is incredibly important. I I love to read. read. I read a lot of books, but I'll tell you this, I'm a fairly selective reader, and one of the first things I pay attention to when I'm looking at a book is who the author is. I want to know the source of this material. And here, the source for this material right here is said to be none other than God himself. The second piece there, after God spoke, is that man wrote, in other words, it's called human agency. So we have the divine causality, God being the source, and that flows through human agency. God revealed and men recorded The word of God is, by the way, no less divine because it was given through human agency. And here's one of the assaults that comes against the Bible. And this comes from all over the place. It comes from liberal scholars and theologians. It comes from unbelievers. It comes from atheists. They say that, you know, you believe in a book that was written by sinful people. Right? Have you ever heard somebody tell you this? And, and, and you can't, therefore, have any confidence in it. Even if God was somehow behind it all, right, the message is being skewed because it's coming through a sinful, tainted vessel or vehicle. So you can't actually trust this because it was written down by sinful human beings. They can make mistakes. But human agency does not erase the divine nature of this book, and it also does not invalidate. A lot of people want to attack this concept and say, well, you just believe then that God kind of rotely used human beings to dictate Scripture. It does not mean that this occurred by some kind of a mechanical dictation. The authors, the human authors of Scripture, were not passive instruments who merely recorded what they were given by rote from heaven, it's not as if the prophets referred to by Peter here are some kind of robots. 2 Peter 1.21 makes that very clear. Men spoke from God as they were, look at the, the, the phrase here, carried along by the Spirit. And the essence of that means that, that they were moved and that God conveyed His message to them, but that they wrote it in full a consciousness with full intent in the normal exercise, listen, of their own minds, their human intellect, their own personal skills, and their own personality. Scripture is a marvelous book, and you can see the different flavors of each book based on the personalities of the individuals. Yes, fallible men wrote down what we have in the pages of Scripture. But fallible men wrote down what was divine and infallible. The Bible is both a human and a divine book, and this in no way implies any fallibility in the scriptures. As I said, God is quite capable of making sure his words are recorded accurately and perfectly without error. Do you believe that? Do you believe if God could speak creation into existence with a word, that he can make sure his communication to humanity is not tainted and is without error? Verse 21 uses a word there, produced. No prophecy was ever produced. Verse 17 and 18, the word uh, born is used. You see that there twice. The voice was born to him. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven. This is an important word. It suggests, listen, a source behind the authors that comes with, listen, an assured outcome, one that is carried out and is guaranteed by another. And here's, here's the, the last reason this can be trusted, because it is absolutely without error. Verse 20 tells us this. Look back down to the page with me. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, Verse 21 reinforces this, it was not produced by the will of man. If scripture did not come from the will of man, but from God, listen, and if it is God's word, then it must all be true, for in him there can be no error or deceit. In other words, the source of God's word as being infallible, without error, is found in that it comes from a God who is without error, a God who has no lies, no deceit, Again, the the term we use for without error is this term inerrancy. Kevin DeYoung says that this word means this, that the Word of God always stands over us and we never stand over the Word of God. When we reject inerrancy, he says, we put ourselves in judgment over God's Word. We claim the right to determine which parts of God's revelation can be trusted and which cannot. And when we deny the complete trustworthiness of the Scriptures then we are forced to accept one of two conclusions. Either scripture is not all from God or God is not always dependable. You see the problem there? Both of these two views are sub-Christian. They're, in fact, anti-Christian. And this doctrine of inerrancy really is at the heart of our faith. To deny it, to disregard it, To edit, to alter, to reject, or to rule out anything in God's word is to commit the sin of unbelief. It's to not take God at his word. It's not to, to believe that God is not capable of communicating effectively and perfectly to his creation. To falter on inerrancy is to lead down the path of apostasy. And this is what we see happening uh, amongst Christians all over the place, or professing Christians. Once you get to the place where you deny the Bible is absolutely true and without error, it forces you down a path because you, you find yourself in a place where you have to say, well, if I can't trust this part of it, what makes me think I can trust any of it? J.I. Packer, a quote is on the screen behind me, says this. One cannot doubt the Bible without far-reaching loss, both of fullness of truth and of fullness of life. If therefore we have at the heart spiritual renewal for our society, for churches, and for our own lives, we shall make much of the entire trustworthiness, that is the inerrancy of Holy Scripture, as the inspired and liberating Word of God. He's saying everything depends upon this in the Christian life. If you want to experience any kind of spiritual renewal, personal, communal, church-wide, societal, it all depends on believing that God's word is true and it has the power to liberate. So let's ask this question another way. Let's just consider this. Did Jesus believe the scriptures were completely trustworthy? I hope your answer to that is definitive yes. But let me prove it to you. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and 40 through 42. This is uh, just one example of how Jesus treats biblical history as straight, a straightforward record of the facts. It shows how much he trusted it. Let's, let's look down at the pages. Beginning at verse 38, let's read this. It says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here." The story of Jonah, here's why we draw this out. The story of Jonah is one of the most disputed historical events in Scripture. I mean, you can, you can look at how, how liberal scholars want to dismantle the Bible and disregard the supernatural aspects of the Bible, but if you were to kind of maybe hone in on a few key stories that have been challenged and criticized for li- by liberal scholars, this one right here, the story of Jonah, is one of the foremost But what we see here is so fascinating. You see, Jesus, when he's responding to the Pharisees, he draws upon this event, and and as he talks about it, here's what we see. Jesus gives unwavering support to its historical reliability. He looks at this story, and he says, it's absolutely true. And maybe some of you are saying, well, maybe Jesus is simply kind of using this story uh, quoting it kind of like a fable, something that's not really historically accurate, but a, a fun story that everybody kind of knew and understood. You know, something like Lord of the Rings for us or the Chronicles of Narnia. But, but you need to see the connection that Jesus makes here. see, he moves from one testimony of the idea of Jonah into the Queen of Sheba. Did you notice that? By the way, which is historically, absolutely historically verifiable, And you need to see the nature of how Jesus is using this story that I think just kind of slams the nail down into the coffin. You see, Jesus is giving a warning to those who would reject him. Do you catch that? And what he's saying is this, listen, do you remember the time of Jonah? I love, we studied Jonah last year in the summer, right? Do you remember what was so significant about Jonah? Here's Jonah, he's a prophet of God from the nation of Israel. He's called to go to the Gentiles, unbelieving people. He's given an assignment, a missionary assignment that no one in Israel would ever want. But as he goes into Israel reluctantly, he begins to preach the the good news that they could be saved from their, their impending judgment because of their sin. And what happens is the whole nation repents in dust and ashes. And here is what Jesus is doing. He's saying those people, this nation who repented, these Gentiles who repented, they will stand in judgment over those who will not believe. Do you see the significance of this? So if this is some kind of fable, listen, listen. The equivalent then, if this is some kind of a made-up story like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, it's like you know he's trying to hammer them with this warning of impending judgment, and it's like him saying, you know, well the the orcs of Mordor are going to rise up in judgment against you. See, it loses its punch, doesn't it? If it's just some fanciful story, this is a serious warning, and Jesus uses imagery. From a historical event. And by the way, Jesus regularly references throughout his ministry in the Gospels people and events of the Old Testament, with ever without excuse me ever hinting that they might not be true. But today, modern liberal scholars propose all kinds of alternative theories in an attempt to undermine the historical reliability of the Bible. They want to attack the authorship of the first five books of the Bible. They want to attack the authorship of some of the prophets. They want to attack the supernatural aspects of Scripture. But when we look at Jesus, listen, when we look at Jesus, we see that He treated the Scriptures as if they were absolutely 100% trustworthy and true. And I don't know about you, I'm, I'm more willing to, to be on Jesus' side than modern liberal scholars on this one. The word of God is true. We have a historically reliable, faithful, and consistent book that has recorded the gospel truths. And this is why this is so significant, because if the Bible is not inerrant, if it is not historically reliable, if it is not to be trusted, then listen, we have no reason to trust what it says about salvation. Right? There's no reason. But because it is reliable because it is without error we know for a fact that there was a man named jesus christ that he was born of a virgin named mary in the town of bethlehem that he possessed an authority that was never seen or known among men that he healed the sick he calmed the seas he cast out demons and he raised the dead we know without a doubt that he was crucified that he was buried that he rose from the grave we know that the tomb was empty. We knew that, know that he appeared to more than 500 people. We know that he ascended to heaven right in front of Peter, James, and John, as Peter has made abundantly clear already for us this morning. And Peter wants to make it clear that we do not follow cleverly devised myths. This isn't some made-up story with some moral or ethical principles to follow. This book isn't probably true. It's not partially true or possibly true. It is totally true, and it is totally trustworthy. God inspired a written record that he calls us to trust and believe. Not some of it, not to cherry pick what we like and what we don't like, which is so often common in today's quote-unquote evangelical Christianity. He calls us to trust and embrace all of it. This book is not the product of human will, but rather the will of God. Every book, every chapter, every line, every word is breathed out by God. We have Right here, what we hold in our hands is an utterly reliable book that is inerrant, it is holy, and it is divine. I mentioned it before back in, in First Peter there. But you should mark down those words. We have something, as he says in verse 19, more sure. I, I think that is a wonderful wonderful translation of these words that are used. In the Bible, you see, we have what is more sure than anything else. We can trust this book because we can trust the source of this book, the one who is absolutely trustworthy. In this world, we can't trust everything we read on the internet. We can't trust everything our teachers say. Certainly, we can't trust politicians. Statistics can be faked. In fact, 80% of statistics are actually made up on the spot. Gotcha. (laughs) Photographs can be manipulated and airbrushed, people and science studies, even our own eyes can deceive us, but the word of God is entirely true, through and through. It is always true, it is never wrong. I love what Psalm 119 says in verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119, verse 160 says this, the psalm of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. It teaches only what is true. I uh, had a, a conversation with a pastor recently who told me, I was telling him that this is what I was gonna be preaching on and, and he was really excited and he said, you know, every once in a while he'll do this in front of his church and he said, he'll take his Bible and he'll put it on the ground and, and he'll, he'll stand on his Bible. Actually, I don't wanna do that. Brian, can I borrow your Bible for it? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't want any angry letters. so I'm not actually gonna stand on it, okay? But he'll say, you know, he'll stand on his Bible and he'll say, look, look, We stand on the word of God. That This is what we build our lives upon. It is absolutely true. And it is the only thing that is absolutely unequivocally true. It has everything we need. Peter says this in in 2 Peter chapter 1. He has everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need to know him, to love him, to follow him, to worship him is found right here. We don't need anything more more than this. And we certainly can't do with anything less than this. This is everything to us. That's why this is a pillar of our church. That's why it's the first pillar, by the way. Because everything we know about every other pillar, where do you think it comes from? Right here. So if we get rid of this, we have nothing. We have nothing at all. And I love this. He said, he, said, he takes it, he stands on it. And he says, we stand on the word of God. But then he picks it up like this and then he puts it over his head. He says, listen, we stand on the word of God. But listen, we stand under the word of God. Why is that? That's secondly, that's the second point in your notes, because the Bible is absolutely authoritative. It's not only trustworthy, that's fantastic, that's great, but what is the implication flowing from that? If it is to be trusted, if it's absolutely true, that means this. And if its source, by the way, is found in God himself, that means that it must also therefore be authoritative, right? God has always ruled through his word, always, always. Always, from the very beginning of the Bible, we see God speaking and creation coming into existence. Listen, that is, his speech is a demonstration, is a manifestation of his sovereign rule over creation. Everything bows to the word of God. It is the supreme authority of the universe. I mean, even in the Garden of Eden, what we see is the word of God being the manifestation of his rule in that garden, right? Right? God speaks to Adam and Eve. He commands them. He tells them what they can do, what they can't do. That is his authority over them. And what was so staggering about the rebellion was the the decision, listen, to usurp his authority by believing the word of the serpent instead of the word of the supreme God. And when they discounted his word as being authoritative for them, everything, 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 everything was destroyed. Do not think the same thing isn't true in your life and mine. (laughs) That so much of our problem in this life comes from a failure to submit ourselves to the authority of God's word and to instead want to be the authority, want to believe some other authority instead of God. The Bible reflects the trustworthiness of God, and it reflects the authority of God, and if you haven't turned there already, turn in your Bibles to Acts 17. Here's here's what we mean when we say that it's absolutely authoritative. We mean this, that the last word always goes to the Word of God. Let me say that again. The last word always goes to the Word of God. We must never allow the teachings of science, of human experience, of church councils and traditions to take the precedence over the scripture. Now, Every Christian acknowledges, in some sense, that our theology and our ethics must line up with Scripture, but, but here's, here's the real test, okay? When push comes to shove in discussions about truth, in discussions about morality, and discussions about ethics, do we appeal to the Bible, or do we appeal to some other source as our final authority? Do we appeal to to the opinion of somebody else? Do we appeal to to reason? Do we appeal to some scientific evidence as the primary authority in our life? Or, Or are we so well versed in the scriptures that we can appeal to God as the supreme authority? On the screen behind me is a statement that comes out of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I think it's so helpful. Listen to Listen to what it says, you can read it with me. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of counsels, opinions of ancient writer, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. The Scriptures is what we measure everything against. Now, let's just let me just make a qualification here: the, the Bible doesn't talk to us about every faucet of knowledge, right? The Bible isn't isn't a book that's seeking to explain all of the intricacies, intricacies of science, intricacies of biology and anatomy. I mean, and engineering. That's not the purpose of the Bible. But whatever the Bible speaks about is absolutely true and absolutely authoritative. And it is to be what we, especially when it comes to matters of life and godliness, of faith, of belief, of trust in God, of knowledge of God, this is what we go to. This is the supreme source and the supreme authority. There is an amazing account of a group of people who model this very thing, this ability to examine the scriptures. And it's found right here in Acts chapter 17, specifically verses 10 and 11. And let me just set the scene up for you a little bit. Look at the context. It helps us get a better sense of what's going on. You see, Paul is wanting to make a contrast between the way two different people received the Scriptures, the Word of God. And here's what it says, and look at uh, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. It says, now when they had passed uh, through amph- amph- Amphipolis, there we go, uh, Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. Here's what Paul does. He goes around and he walks into the synagogues. He goes to Jews who have have the Scriptures. That's what he's doing. And he wants to make an appeal to them based on the Scriptures. So on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul. Look, the point is this. He walks in with the, the Old Testament scriptures and he walks them through and he explains the scriptures, the point to the reality of Jesus Christ. And he says, look, look, see how the scriptures testify to Jesus being the sacrificial lamb of God. He had to die. He was prophesied to have rose from the grave. But while he was there in Thessalonica, listen, many of them, some of them believed, but what happened was there was a group of Jews who were jealous, the text goes on to tell us, and some wicked men, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of this man named Jason who had taken Paul in, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. They declare these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there was another king, Jesus. The point is that most of the people there refused to believe the scriptures, they refuse to believe the word of God, and in fact, some of these people even followed Paul as he continued on his journey and continued to harass him. And then you come to verse 10 and listen to what it says. Now, Paul is now somewhere different. It says, His brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. This is how serious the persecution is, to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews, here's the contrast, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why were they more noble? Why are they being praised as more honorable? Listen, they received the Word with all eagerness, but here it is, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. This group here, they they took the Scriptures in, and every day they heard Paul expound the truth of the Scriptures, and they began to see if Paul's Word could be supported by God's Word. You see. They were looking into everything. They were testing what they heard, diligently discerning truth. And, you know, one of the saddest indictments on our Christian culture today is that we have unprecedented access to the Scriptures, but unprecedented ignorance of the Scriptures. Uh, I've told this story before, but it it fits so well. I, I remember talking to a couple who was seeking to find a church. This is when I was in the United States and they said they were visiting churches. They said they went to over a dozen churches and, and every time they'd go in, you know, the, the Bible wasn't even opened in most of the churches and most of the believers didn't even have a Bible and, and they said pretty soon their family would just do this they, to, to determine whether or not they should even look at going into a church. They would sit in the parking lot before the church service started and watch how many people were walking in holding a Bible. That's That's unbelievable. And I just, I think that in our church, I hope, I hope you see, like I have no authority in myself. You realize that? I have no authority in myself. I don't speak on my own authority. The scripture is the authority in this church. And, and, and one of the things we say around here is this, like, don't take my word for it. When I'm talking about something, just don't take my word for it. Is it true? Does the Bible affirm this? Does the Bible say this? This is the authority. This is the authority, and we need, to, we need to have our Bibles open like the Bereans, that they are established as being those who are noble because they were a, a Bible-believing group of people who wanted everything to be tested by the Scriptures, and that's what we need to be like. We need to test, we need to confirm it, and then we need to believe it, and that's what they did. And we believe only when we are sure it can be supported by the Scriptures, this passage so perfectly demonstrates what it means to affirm the authority of the Bible. If the Scripture says it, we believe it. If it doesn't, we reject it. The Word, the written Word of God was their authority, and it must also be our authority. I want to, um, I want to incorporate an apologetic for the Bible here, a, a defense of the Bible, because maybe maybe you're asking yourself, well, how do I know that this book, like from cover to cover, These 66 books, that's what the Bible is made up of in our um, English version, 66 books. How can I know these books are the authoritative word of God? How can I know that it's only these books? How do I know that they are the final authority? Uh, I know, and I have been challenged um, by many people on this in conversations, unbelievers who, who think that somehow the Bible has come about by simply the will of man, that somehow this book here was a decision that was made because of the preferences of other people. Um, It was a power move. You know, if you ever watched the movie or read the book The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, which, by the way, is a fictional novel, right? It's a novel. In that movie and book, Dan Brown attacks this concept that these 66 books actually are the ones that belong in the Bible. And he goes after it saying that really this is the invention of mankind. And and the tendency sometimes in our mind is to think of a group of men who sat around in a church council sometime in the you know, mid-300s, early 400s, and they simply decided which books were in and which books were out, all of this based on personal preference, all of this based on some kind of political ambition. And the truth is that that is so far from the truth. And here's how this relates to authority. Maybe you've heard the term canon, the canon of strip- Scripture, or canonicity. In other words, that this is, we, we call this the canon of Scripture. These are the books that are recognized as being from God. The word canon originally meant a straight staff or a measuring rod. The idea is that it is the standard or the rule of truth by which everything else is measured, And only the books, listen, that were recognized as being inspired by God were included in the canon of Scripture. And so I just want to really quickly pull this apart and consider both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I hope maybe this would be helpful for you to anchor you a little bit more in the historical reliability of this book. So let's first consider the Old Testament. The Old Testament consists of 39 books in our English translation of the Bible. These were the same books that made up the Jewish Bible, Um, But the Jewish Bible is made up of three sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. By the way, the Jewish Bible is arranged differently. The the order of the books is different, and it has fewer books in number because they actually merge some of the books that in English we've separated. Um, but, But all of the books, same books, are actually there in that Jewish Bible in the, the Jewish Bible, begins with Genesis, chronologically, and then it ends with 2 Chronicles. And that's going to be important. You want to hang on to that. Begins with Genesis, it ends with 2 Chronicles. We'll come back to that in a minute. Maybe you've, you've wondered about the Apocrypha. If you've come out of a Catholic background, or you have Catholic friends who, who have a Catholic Bible, it contains in it, between the two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Apocryphal writings, these are a, a collection of Jewish writings and they occurred chronologically between the Old and the New Testament when the uh, 400 years between the writing of the Old and New Testament it's called the Intertestamental Period. The Jewish people, just so you know, have never ever considered these writings to be inspired or canonical It was commonly understood that after the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi died that the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. In fact, the apocryphal books themselves, specifically 1 Maccabees, testifies to the cessation of prophecy after these prophets. In other words, the apocryphal writings do not claim for themselves to be in the category of inspired writings. What was common in the Old Testament scriptures was to read the phrase, Thus saith the Lord, right? Or or the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah. Here's what we see as a common theme in the Old Testament. In the Apocryphal writings, those terms are never, ever used. Not even once. What's interesting is that when we turn to the New Testament witness about the Old Testament canon, it's it's incredibly important and it's also striking that the New Testament quotes various parts of the Old Testament as divinely authoritative, listen, more than 295 times. Never once does it quote the Apocryphal writings or any other writing outside of the Bible as being divinely authoritative. There are a couple of New Testament books who quote from other sources, even pagan authors, Acts 17 being one of them and Titus chapter 1. But listen, these citations are never quoted as scripture or seen as having divine authority. They're simply being used as illustrations to connect with the culture. So let's ask it a different way. What was Jesus' Bible? What was the Bible that Jesus used and affirmed as being authoritative? First of all, there's no record of any dispute between Jesus and the religious leaders over the extent of the scriptures. There's never a division and a discussion. You know, Jesus has a lot of run-ins with the Pharisees and the religious elite. Never once does he have a run-in about what is actually considered to be Scripture and what is not, what should be in and what should be out. They never have those kind of discussions. There seems to have been a commonly held understanding of what was binding and authoritative. There was common ground here. Jesus and his adversaries often disagreed over the meaning of the Hebrew Scriptures, but never over their scope When Jesus referred to the whole Hebrew Bible, he used terms that reflected the standard Jewish division. Remember how I said that it was divided into the law, the prophets, and the writings? Consider Luke 24 for a moment. Now, Luke 24 should be up on the screen. But in, in Luke 24, this is one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament. It's the road to Emmaus, right? And, and, and here's these men who have they are just contemplating the, the events of the, the crucifixion in Jerusalem that had just taken place, and they're walking along trying to figure these things out, and all of a sudden, some guy shows up with them, and of course, we know it's Jesus. And Jesus begins to talk with them, and, and here's what he says in verse 44. He says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, listen, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, he uses the phrase, the Psalms there, um, instead of the writings, because the Psalms were the first and largest book of the writings. They were at the very beginning, the largest chunk, and what we know uh, from history is that the, the, the phrase Psalms just came to stand for the whole of the the writings. So having mentioned the three parts, look what he says in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. In other words, Jesus looks at what was commonly held to as being Scripture, as being the authoritative divine Word of God, and he affirms it in this verse. The most significant demonstration that Jesus' Bible was The recognized Jewish Bible is actually found, though, in Luke chapter 11, and I got it on the screen behind me, too. We're moving through a lot of verses here. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So, well, I don't understand how that proves anything. Well, listen, Jesus makes it clear here that the Bible begins in Genesis and it ends, the Old Testament does, in 2 Chronicles. Remember I talked to you about the the chronological order of the the Jewish Bible? There's Genesis at the beginning and 2 Chronicles at the end. Well, listen, the first recorded murder is the murder of Abel. The last recorded murder of a prophet is Zechariah, which is found in 2 Chronicles 24, verses 20 and 21. And you see what Jesus is doing here? He's using these two prophets as the bookends of the Hebrew Bible, and he's saying, look, from cover to cover, from all of revealed truth. It's also helpful to know that Jesus quotes in the New Testament and the Gospels from each of the three parts of Scripture as authoritative material. And the point I'm trying to make, I hope, is, is abundantly clear. The Old Testament we have contains the only recognized, inspired, and authoritative truth and, and we see that coming definitively through the mouth of Jesus himself, and F.F. F. Bruce put it this way, he said, no body of literature ever had its credentials confirmed by a higher authority. Well, what's the criteria that was used to recognize an Old Testament book as being from God, as being a part of the canon? Well, first, there, there's no set kind of list, we just, we just see these themes running throughout kind of history. First, it, it had no contradictions. That makes sense, right? It is without error. It has no contradictions, and you should expect that of the Bible you have in your hands. One of of my favorite uh, um, reoccurring events is when uh, liberal scholars and archaeologists who want to disprove the Bible, right? They want to say, well, there's no evidence to prove that this place ever existed. You know, we have this great story about this place in the Bible, but we can't find any evidence that it even exists. So therefore, the Bible is full of inaccuracies and it's false. And you want to know what happens time and time again? Archaeology continues not to disprove the, reliable, the historical reliability of this book right here, but to prove it. They keep on uncovering things that remind us that the word of God is true. It's amazing, I love the humor of God in that, just like he keeps things buried just long enough so that people might be questioning it, and then just brings them to light, and everybody's kind of running again, scrambling, trying to figure out a different option. There's no contradictions in this book. If it contradicted itself, it wouldn't have divine origins at all. Secondly, it was written by prophets or persons recognized as having divine authority, Again, those phrases, thus saith the Lord, or the word of God came to the prophet, these were incredibly important precursors to identifying something as being from God. The third thing is that it originated through the inspiration from God. You know, every time a prophet spoke did not mean that he was speaking on behalf of God. He would come with certain messages that were given to him directly from God. And the fourth thing was that the, it was accepted by the Jews as authoritative. And, and commonly, uh, what we see happening is this. They understood when a prophet was in their midst and when the word of God was flowing through this prophet. And taken together, these criteria form a strong case as to how the scriptures were recognized as authoritative. You say, well, what about the New Testament? Well, obviously, Jesus didn't have a New Testament, but what we see is this the ministry of Jesus began to pave the way for the New Testament canon. Jesus had come, you'll remember, uh, Jesus came, when he came on the scene, he came with a staggering degree of authority. Do you remember that? I mean, the Gospels emphasize this concept, that he came and he spoke with authority. He had authority over the realms of nature. He had authority over the demons. He had authority over sickness and disease. He had authority over death. I mean, and what we see, especially after the Sermon on the Mount, I love it. The phrase that's used is this, the people were amazed because he taught them as one who had authority. It was common in the the Jewish culture for the rabbis to never claim authority from themselves. There was no inherent authority in them. So they quoted, they stacked up references to respected intellectual rabbis. You know, they they were well taught, well schooled, so they appealed to others to to validate them. But Jesus comes along and he throws that all away and he says, Those those guys aren't the authorities. I'm the supreme authority. So he begins to pave the way. and, And we know this. Jesus said that. He came from the Father, and what the Father has said to him, so he speaks. And so Jesus began to teach, never contradicting the Old Testament. He talks about how he came not to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. And then revelation begins to happen again. There is a new covenant that the Old Testament, by the way, foretold. And in this new covenant, there would be new revelation to come along with it. And so Jesus begins to establish this new authority. But when Jesus ascends to heaven, we know this, he had chosen for himself 12 disciples who would then be his spokesmen who would carry forth the message that he had given to them. And he even told them, remember, he told them that the spirit of God would come and he would, he would fill them and he would illuminate their minds and he would bring to their minds all the things that they had seen. You see, he had equipped them to be the carriers, to be the spokesmen of his divine truth. But when the apostles were alive and operating in the first century, there was no great need for a New Testament canon to be defined. You say, well, how come? Well, because the apostles were those divinely appointed and ordained men. They had in themselves the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had commissioned them. He'd given them his authority to get the church off the ground. They were God's authority on this earth between the time of the Lord's ascension and up until the completion of the New Testament Scriptures, which would then become a final and continuing authority. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They had a unique, special role in launching the church So while the apostles were alive, it was easy to determine what authoritative apostolic teaching was. I mean, if you wanted to to determine whether or not this was true, you just went and got Paul or you went and got Peter and you asked them, hey, is this what you were talking about? But listen, quickly we see a need for a New Testament canon because heresies began to arise as false teachers began to inundate the church. Add to that that the apostles were beginning to be systematically targeted and killed off one at a time. God determined that the oral teachings would be written down and recorded so that the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints would not be distorted or destroyed, but instead would be protected and preserved. The most basic criteria for recognizing, by the way, that's important, not deciding. Nobody decides what is in the canon of Scripture. It is recognized as being from God. The most basic criteria for recognizing was if a book was breathed out by God, it was inspired by God. So how did the church recognize which books were inspired by God and which were not? Three basic criteria when it comes to the New Testament. Apostolic origin is the first one. They were, as I said, the commissioned authoritative spokesmen for Jesus. Jesus had promised that he would use them to not only speak but write the inerrant scriptures. So the books of the New Testament had to be related in some way to an apostle. That was absolutely essential. The question that they would ask was, was this book written by an apostle or was it supervised by an apostle? That was of the utmost importance. The second criteria was this, did the church recognize it? And by the church, I mean broadly speaking, did the church universal embrace this letter as being inspired from God, apostolic, or was it disputed greatly amongst the the churches that existed at the time? The third thing was this, did it contain apostolic content? And this especially applies when we get further and further away from the apostles, Did it have apostolic content? Does the content obviously correspond in doctrine to what the apostles themselves taught when they were alive? This is why, you know, you maybe have heard of what are called the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary. This is why those are not canonical. They are deemed as not meeting the criteria. First of all, uh, the authorship is greatly disputed in all of these books. None of them seem to have a legitimate authorship. They're all... um, um, pseudo-authors, pseudonyms being used. None of them contain consistent apostolic content, and none of them were embraced holistically by the church. Early on, the vast majority of the 27 books of the New Testament were undisputed, with a few very minor exceptions. By the middle to late 4th century, there was little or no question concerning the 27 canonical books of the, of the New Testament. There were no really serious questions about this, and there still aren't. Now, we're scratching the surface here. And I understand, I appreciate you bearing with me, this is a little bit more of a classroom, kind of a setting at this point in the message, but I just want you to know, we're scratching the surface here. And, and what you need to know is that these 66 books, making up our Bible, have stood the test of time. Over and over again, they prove themselves true, trustworthy, and absolutely authoritative And and if you're interested in learning more, I have a bookshelf in my office with a dozen books about this very topic, and you are welcome to borrow it and to read it, and maybe write a paper on it if, just kidding, you don't have to do that. I just want to conclude by considering Jesus' perspective on the authority of scriptures. So bear with me a few more minutes. Jesus made the most remarkable claims about scripture, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, here we see not what Jesus considered to be the Bible, but what Jesus believed about the Bible. This is one of the most important things that Jesus ever said. Jesus makes a sweeping claim about the scriptures, and here he makes this judgment that the scriptures cannot be broken. Look at verse 35 with me. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Context is critical here. Jesus has just declared himself to be God. He said to the Jews, I and the Father are one, and so instantly they're they're getting themselves all up in a tizzy, and he's... he's He's all of a sudden his life is on the line for claiming to make himself God. That's made very clear in verse thirty three. They've picked up stones to stone him. They recognize the gravity of what he's declaring for himself. And to defend himself, Jesus quotes Psalm eighty two, verse six. That's what we see in verse thirty five. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, you see what he's doing. He's quoting the Scriptures and he's forcing them to go back to the Word of God and to wrestle with the truth of God's Word. Now, our purpose here is not to explain this curious reference to people being called gods. That's not that's not our purpose right now. Um, we can talk about that another time. But for our point, we need to focus on this phrase here: the Scriptures cannot be broken. They cannot be broken. Jesus defends himself from one little word in one obscure psalm, and he doesn't have to prove that Psalm 82 is authoritative. That's part of the point here. He's meeting them on common ground. He knows what they already believe about the Scripture. It's the supreme authority. Kevin DeYoung says, For Jesus, anything from Scripture down to the individual words and the least heralded passages possessed unquestioned authority. The word broken there in the Greek has the idea of something being loosed or released or dismissed or dissolved. It's Jesus' way of saying the word of Scripture can never be nullified or invalidated. It always stands firm. It is fixed forever. There is no statement in God's word that is erroneous, no promise or threat that will remain unfulfilled because this is the absolutely authoritative word of God. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that God's word cannot be broken. The question of authority is important because all religion, in fact, every sphere of human inquiry rests on authority in every area of life. Listen, we give someone or something the last word. Maybe it's your parents, maybe it's culture, maybe it's the community around you, maybe it's your own feelings, maybe it's government or science or reason or academics or opinion polls or websites or or another holy book. Every one of us turns to a final arbiter of truth claims. For some of us in here, maybe it's simply just ourselves. For Christians, the final arbiter is the authority of the Bible interpreted and applied correctly. The Bereans believed it, Jesus believed it. Do you believe it? Jesus declares that the scriptures are trustworthy and authoritative. And what I love about Jesus is he never put himself over God's word. He always stood upon it, but he always stood under it. As summer begins with all of its busyness, I just want to encourage you do not let the word of God slip from its proper place in your hearts and in your minds. The word of God is the means by which we will be transformed. This book contains the words of life. Let us not weaken in our commitment to our unbreakable Bible. Let us not stray from its divinely exhaled truth. May we find it to be our greatest delight and our greatest desire. If I can encourage you in these ways, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus who read it faithfully. Be like Jesus who studied it diligently. Be like Jesus who memorized it regularly be like jesus who taught it consistently listen and be like jesus who obeyed it obeyed it above all else lastly it is the inspired word that continually points us back to the incarnate word the reason this book is so precious to us is because it reveals to us our lord and savior jesus christ faithfully points us back to his love to his grace to his beauty